Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, it's been a tremendous privilege to walk through all these texts this fall, seeing in them what it means to be your people in our day. And I pray as we wrap this up today, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love so that you be glorified in our midst as your people, renewed, revived, and changed. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Have you ever seen a famous person in public? You know, you go, oh, look, there he is. Uh, Kimmy and I were in uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Pittsburgh. And we didn't know it, but Mario Lemieux, you know, had a wine locker. And all of a sudden, I just look over, and there's all these people. And there he is, six foot six, <laughs> Mario Lemieux. You couldn't miss the guy. I go, you know, I'm pointing. That's Mario. I got a glimpse of him. Well, in Christ, that's who we are, trying to point people to Jesus so they too can get a glimpse of the glory in the kingdom of earth that we live in now, which is also we're in the kingdom of heaven. Today we wrap up our fall series. Next week we have Reformation Sunday, which is a fun day, and the whole church calendar. We're going to focus on that great French reformer, John Calvin. He's not who you think he is. We're going to, then we flow to two weeks, mini-series on stewardship. Then the following week is Christ the King Sunday, Thanksgiving Sunday. Then after that, it's, ta-da, Advent it's going to come fast, friends, and it's a wonderful time of year. But we've spent the last seven weeks focusing on the church. We started off with Jesus as our focus, that this is all about Christ and the difference he's made in our lives. And from that focus, we learned through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that we're living letters, being read by all, God making his appeal through us as his ambassadors for Christ. With that said, what does an ambassador's life look like? Well, we learned from Acts 2 that the first church were devoted to learning from the Scripture. We're devoted to loving one another, doing life together. They were devoted to worshiping, both individually and corporately. And they were devoted to praying, individually and corporately. And if any of those are off kilter, it, it, it's not a credible Christian faith. And so we learned the next week that as we live this way, each and every one of us are vital parts of the body of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Each and every one of us have a role to play, and some are up front and some are behind the scenes, but each and every one of us, and we don't want to be like a decapitated hand sitting out saying, I'm part of the body, but really it's just dead, right? And then we learned from the gospel reading that I prayed again today, that we, as we live this life, we are salt and light. We are preservative, and we are truly seasoning the west shore of Cleveland, illuminous with the Holy Spirit of Christ. And we wrapped up last week that as we live that way, we love one another because we glory in the glory of Christ, and we can love one another in a way that the world just looks at it and says, that's amazing. But none of that really describes what the church's purpose is. 
Why, why, are we, why do we exist, if you will? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10 or in the back of your bulletin, Paul is writing the Corinthians before he gets into how they're not using the spiritual gifts in a functional manner, before he talks about being part of the body of Christ, he talks about the reason why they're there, which is the glory of God, number one, for the good of neighbor, number two, so that they may discover the grace of a glorious God. All right? Let's look at these. First, chapter 10, verse 31, the glory of God. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Like we said last week, the idea of the glory of God is a slippery slope. It's a concept that religious people throw around a lot, but nobody knows what they're talking about. Because the only time it's actually used in our culture is in a negative sense. That film glorifies violence. Or we had a coach that would say, scream at us and say, no guts, no glory, Sherman. You know? Or those were the glory days, as if they really were the glory days. And so last week we learned that one of the senses of the word glory is beauty. To glorify something is to give glory to it, to give it beauty and to glorify it and make it shine, something brilliant. And Paul suggests in that verse that all of life, starting with the most ordinary things like eating and drinking, in such a way that God is publicly praised, honored, and made famous. God is indeed weighty and glorious in his being, and Paul tells us that all our desires should ultimately aim at making God glorious in our lives, our daily activities. As simple and ordinary as they may be, should be aimed at his glory. The shape of our lives make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us. However, as it always has been the case, often people make the crucial mistake of confining glory-aimed activity only to Sunday mornings. They're devoted in their public worship. Christians have often made the mistake of compartmentalizing their lives and their worship and then go throughout the week and it doesn't make an impact on their lives. They have neglected the glory-aimed potential of the ordinary because they have focused exclusively on matters of prayer book worship, or this is how we do it, worship. And as such, they've tended to downplay the importance and the significance and the potential for a glory-filled Holy Spirit life. And while God does want our piety, our public worship, and our spiritual disciplines, he wants more than that. We need to see the clear integration and the integration of faith and work, God and science, faith and justice, making ourselves available as citizens pursuing human flourishing, all for the common good. It's important to understand that giving glory to God is not simply vertical, it's also horizontal. God's glory is designed to be gained comprehensively. So what exactly is the nature of our relationship between our doing good and to our neighbors and giving glory to God? I'm glad you asked. Point number two, we give glory to God for the good of our neighbor. 
so how, did, how does that work? How does doing good to our neighbor glorify God? Verse 23 through 30, the call is to think about our choices and decisions we make in light of what is good for our neighbors. In the context of discussing the matter of food sacrificed here, Paul is asking, what are the far-reaching implications for your neighbor? So he's, the Corinthians are obviously struggling to love their neighbors. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. See, there's two groups in the Corinthian church, brothers and sisters, that are going on right here. And I keep telling you this, and I know that if we were in a time machine, we went back to Corinth, we say, I'm not joining that church. And I go, neither am I. Let's, let's form another community over here, because those people are whacked. <laughs> They've got a whole group of moral conformists, legalists, that are going around and saying, this is the way the Christian life. There's also a group which we could catalyze as self-discoverers, licentious Christians. And he addresses them in verse 23, saying, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. The, the, the licentious ones were using the theological truth of the liberty of the gospel as the license to do whatever they wanted. Then there's the moral conformists, the legalists, if you will, whom Paul addresses in 25 and 26, and he says, eat whatever is sold in the market. Because they did not fully understand that the liberty they had in the gospel, and they were applying their scruples to the community at large, thus improperly binding their consciences on their brothers. So Paul quotes our psalm that we prayed, 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a verse that was invoked at Jewish prayers. Well, in today's church, there's both types of people. You know that, right? There are people who are publicly legalistic and privately licentious, and people who are publicly licentious and privately, oh, they got their rules too, and they make sure in your house, their house that's the way that you're going to run. The word to both groups is the same. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Those moral conformists sought their own good and ignored the way their approach bound the conscience of their neighbors. And the self-discovery folks sought their own good and ignored the way their approach confused the witness of the gospel to the rest of the community. So the word to both from Paul is stop seeking your own good, seek the good of your neighbor, thereby giving glory to God. So there's really three approaches to God and neighbor when you really think about it looking at verses 27 to 30. The moral conformist was attempting to glorify God without loving his neighbor. Verse 27, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In this view, loving neighbor is unnecessary. <laughs> they're, they're going there. They don't care about loving their neighbor. They just want to get the rules down right, you see. Because the meat in Corinth probably sold in that market was probably 
dedicated to some idolatrous thing. And Paul is saying, they don't know any better. Eat it. That's what he's saying. You know, a typical legalist is invited to a home of an unbeliever and the non-Christian offers meat, which would have been a delicacy back then. Now, that legalistic person is thinking, was this offered to the gods? Rather than simply receiving the offer and giving thanks to God for the food, the, the moral conformist individual hesitates and ultimately refuses the meal. And Paul is pointing out to them, that's not a good neighbor. For that moral conformist, doing good to a neighbor is an accessory, not a necessity. Paul wants to steer the church away from that, from being this privatized moral conformist because they would end up being cold witnesses, rigid. And so on the other hand, Paul says, that self-discovery group, they're attempting to love their neighbor without glorifying God at all. Verse 28 and 29, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? He's addressing those who are more concerned about their own freedom than the good of their neighbor. You're sitting down to a meal with another Christian who fully well knows that that's been sacrificed to idol and it bothers them. And they've told you that. And he's saying, well, don't eat it then. For their sake, not yours. I know you're hungry. Eat the lettuce. You know? It's important that we get this down. They were attempting to love their neighbors without directing their act toward the ultimate source of love, who is God in Christ himself. In this view, loving one's neighbor is necessary, but it's an end to itself. Look at me. Aren't I a nice person? And the self gets glory because it's reflected back at them, not to God. It's robbing God of his glory by ignoring him because it's choosing one's desire for a self-generated good works over the desires of God. A variant of this approach is manifested today in apathy towards God and neighbor. That self-discovery individual can also be uh, very much against the true church or the legalistic church. There is a prevalent in our contemporary context, modern day toleration can become intolerant toward the, what they would call the intolerant. God loves you, no exception except for the Anglican Church in North America. Right? I can be open minded and recognize the rights of everyone else, but not those guys. That's quite intolerant, isn't it? It can be very self-negating and very inconsistent way to live as a Christian. But there is a third way to approach this issue, and it's namely Paul's way, the gospel-centered approach, the approach to love one's neighbor for the glory of God. The love of neighbor is a means of glorifying God that he first loved us. So in this view, loving one's neighbor is necessary, but it's not an end to itself. The glory of God is the end to which all beings are directed. 
God gets the glory because he receives it by the means through which he asked to receive it. We are called to give God the glory he deserves in the way that he receives it. We must allow God's desire to shape and direct all of our activity for his glory. Everything we do. Through this gospel-centered approach, others become necessary but not sufficient. And necessary but not exclusive. Including the spiritual disciplines. The problem is we got to learn this, right? We're not actually great at it. And oftentimes we wonder secretly just between you and the Lord, what's in it for me? When loving our neighbor is about what we do or do not get out of it, we're not really loving our neighbors. We're simply using them. We're not ultimately interested in giving glory to God. We end up becoming glory thieves. Even when we can objectively acknowledge that God is the supreme being and he's beautiful and wonderful, ultimately worthy of glory, we still look for a piece of glory ourselves. It's quite possible to think about love in a negative sense that is too referential. It's all about selflessness and not ready to be about love. And we can also think of glory in the same manner. How can a Christian individual move toward that beyond that self-centered cycle? How can we move past the dangers of mere moral conformity and self-discovery? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves and so bring glory to God? I'm glad you asked. Verse 32, we do everything by the grace of a glorious God. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The call for Christians is to have an other-centered, self-giving love on mission. It's to have more concern for the needs of others than our own needs. It's also to be self-giving, not seeking one's own advantage. Paul is calling upon the Corinthians to open up by allowing themselves to be disadvantaged for the sake of others. It is love on a mission that they might be saved, he says. Paul can give out this call because he's lived this out in his own life, in his own ministry. It's a purpose statement here. It's through our other-centered, self-giving posture that we can be good neighbors because we're concerned about their ultimate good, namely their salvation. Though this need not and cannot be the exclusive aim in the way we relate to our neighbors, it must be the primary aim, the way we love our neighbors. God is glorified when our love for our neighbors leads them to embracing. And Paul offers himself as a model of this kind of love. His ministry is a model for how one can adapt to all different kinds of settings, quite frankly, in order to make the gospel of Christ compelling, because it is compelling. But his model is based on the accomplishments example of one who is even greater than Paul. The only way we can be moved beyond our self-interest and self-centeredness and live lives of other-centered, self-giving love is to see that we are recipients of God's 
other-centered, self-giving love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of God as I am of Christ. In verse 24, he says, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And Jesus says, in essence, I do not seek my own good but the good of my enemies. Jesus, the one who was ultimately glorified, in a sense became deglorified in order that we, his enemies, might be the recipients of his love. Jesus was the only person in history who perfectly loved his neighbor and his enemies, all for the glory of God. He fulfilled the law even while avoiding the trap of moral conformity. He never attempted to avoid his neighbors in his glorification of God. He secured and exercised freedom even while avoiding the trap of self-discovering licentiousness. He never attempted to use his neighbors to gain glory for himself. And we, my friends, can love the, our neighbors for the glory of God because Jesus loved us, his enemies, for the glory of God. We can disadvantage ourselves for others because Jesus was ultimately disadvantaged for us. He does receiving, how does that other receiving, self-giving love of God on mission change the human heart? Our spiritual capital is no longer invested in trying to get God's love, but in demonstrating the love that we've already been given. That's how. Because when we understand that everything between us and God has been fully made right, that Christians live their lives under a banner that reads, it is finished. We necessarily turn from ourselves and turn to our neighbor, where they, we live, where we work, where we play. Forever freed from our need to pay back God or secure God's love and acceptance because we're now free to serve and love others. We work for others horizontally because God worked for us vertically. The Christian lives from belovedness to loving action. Let me repeat that. The Christian moves from belovedness to loving action. His love for us begets love from us. Because everything we need in Christ, we already possess. We're now free to do everything to others without needing others to do anything for us. We can now actively spend our lives giving instead of taking. Going to the back instead of going to the front. Sacrificing myself for others instead of sacrificing others for myself. This sort of truth protects us from being concerned about the verdicts people place on us. Because... They do, and we're very much aware of them. Every day we desire to hear the kind of verdict that declares that we're okay, that we're good, that we're competent, that we're worthy. So we walk around daily performing because we know that we're always on trial. Our lives are fixated on other people's responses to us, and Paul's solution to that insecurity is to know that the trial is over. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's immensely encouraging to know that because Christ has gone to trial for us, we are no longer in tri on trial. As a matter of fact, the court is adjourned. So why are you still in the courtroom? We're free to love our neighbors and to glorify our God. We're no longer in the courtroom. We're newly 
motivated lovers of others and lovers of God. And we newly, because our affections have been steered to this beautiful picture of Jesus going to trial on our behalf. Giving us all the advantages that he had. We can now live a life of freedom that doesn't abuse our liberties, but instead uses them for the glory of God by loving our neighbors. Hugh Halter is the pastor of the Adullam Church outside of Denver. Um, it, it's a fascinating community. Um, when when you, you go to the worship service, it's kind of sloppy. It just is. And it's this glorious community of, of belonging, no matter where you are in your journey. It's just, just come along with us is their kind of theme there. And if you're a Christian, you come into the community, you don't take a class. The first thing they tell you is, Go love your neighbors where you live, work, and play and invite them along. Find the sojourners there and invite them along. And then lead a little church, if you will, using our language. <laughs> and all of a sudden, then they have a class teaching those people how to disciple others. <laughs> so it might take a year or two or three before you have a group of people who do this. But what they've found, it teaches that community to love others well. So in John 21, Jesus confronts Peter who had betrayed him and he asks him three times, do you love me? Peter's broken. He's completely shattered. But he does love Jesus. And Jesus does not give Peter a recovery program. Instead, in the midst of his brokenness, Jesus asks him with one, he tasks him with one thing. Peter, feed my sheep. What Jesus is trying to do for Peter at that very moment is help him understand that loving God means loving his neighbor. Likewise, glorifying God means doing good for one's neighbor. Like Peter, we too are broken in our sin. We deny Christ. We rob God's glory with our self-centered lives. But God tells us that even though we betrayed him, he reinstates us. Let us reflect on this radical, restoring love of God in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. And let us, through our lives, do good, love mercy, and walk humbly with God and our neighbors together, giving them a glimpse. It's real. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series which has taught us so much that we cannot do the Christian life in isolation. We pray, Lord, you would just continue to do this good work in each and every one of us this fall. And that as we live our lives all for your glory, we would be that balanced Christianity, that gospel-centered, loving our neighbor Christianity, so that we would do it all for your glory. No strings attached. And Lord, that you would do a wonderful work in us so that the world would sit up and recognize you're doing an amazing work in us as we give you all the honor and glory, Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.